This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Us Finishing Stuff. Jin. Six Ages, Ride Like the Wind. And the Discovery of Witchcraft. In Cursed Court, an amazing new board game from Atlas Games, you play minor nobles with limited resources. Oh, so limited. You bet your influence and hope that major figures do what you expect each year at court. Major figures like the king, queen, priestess, and assassin. I don't like the sound of that last one. Winner of the Major Fun Award, Father Geek Approved Seal, and the Dice Tower Seal of Excellence. Citadel's designer Bruno Ferruti says... He has not been as enthralled by a new game in years and calls it an unexpected masterwork. Geek Dad calls it an excellent bidding and bluffing game. It's easy to learn, plays fairly quickly, and looks great on the table. Check out the amazing art, great gameplay, and up-to-the-minute award list at atlas-games.com slash cursed court. Or see the link in the show notes. Or make haste to your friendly local game store. Before all those other lousy minor courtiers beat you to it. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But look at that. The dice are an odd blend of D10s and a single die six. The miniatures, I think, are abstract. They're in our hearts, Robin. And Peter Frampton... <laughs> Ow, I hate it when there's a miniature in my heart. Ow! Yeah, that requires surgery. Still haven't recovered from that ugly incident with the game's workshop. Uh, in the future, there is only war, Robin. That's yeah. the lesson. Well, I, I hope it's pewter and not lead. Or I'm right, sorry. I hope so, too. Peter Frampton, meanwhile, is looking downright gaunt. If not tattered, it's hard to say whether he is yellower or redder, but we are in the gaming hut to talk about our own uh, sojourns in the gaming sweat lodge that is the design process for Vampire, the Masquerade, and Yellow King role-playing games. Robin, what do you got for us? Right, so I thought we would, uh, we both have finished our, our big projects, uh, see previous discussion of tattering, and... Uh, so I thought we would both uh, look back and, and look at uh, surprises and uh, lessons that we may have learned uh, from the process. Any big project you go in thinking it will be uh, one thing, and you either, I uh, think usually if, if uh, you know what you're doing, you accomplish your main design goals. But uh, what do you learn along the way, and what, do you, uh, what are you surprised by along the way? And we've both got our big projects off into post-production, and uh, therefore uh, we're sitting back, uh, with, with breeze running through our hair. Oh no, we don't. We've got a bunch of other things. We, yeah, we got more stuff to do. Get, get started on. Um, so, uh, my, uh, big surprise from the Yellow King role playing game is that the new, uh, faster, entirely player facing, somewhat more abstract combat system, the quick shock combat system faced less resistance than I, uh, thought I might from play testers that uh, it doesn't mean that, uh, everybody wants to switch to this, uh, quicker, faster, more, uh, narrative version that focuses more on the effects of the damage uh, that you take psychically or physically than on, uh, what has happened during the fight. But, uh, overall, uh, the 
percentage of people who uh, were really into that was surprisingly high, which is good because, of course, when you're playtesting, you don't want to get back uh, a uh, unanimous or large response of, oh, no, don't do that. Start over. Yeah. <laughs> so or I'm glad that didn't we, happen. We tried that, and then we got bored slash angry slash frustrated and went back to old game X that we like better. Yes. Yeah. Now, uh, my thing was taking an existing engine and then changing a big chunk of that engine, or perhaps ch- an existing vehicle and swapping in a a, a new carburetor or whatever lame analogy you would like <laughs> to grow for. I'm going to let you get way out onto that limb, Robin. I'm uh, just going to sit here and back off. Um, and uh, whereas you are uh, working on, on, or we're working on something that is a uh, a fine tuning, but a, a step forward uh, from a well-loved existing thing so that you've got e- even more of a core base of people who are, uh, uh, ready to uh, revolt at any uh, deviation. So uh, did you find any uh, big surprises uh, regarding the new things that you uh, and the rest of your team added to uh, 5th edition Vampire the Masquerade? Well, we haven't. I mean, there is no way to say what some people will do because Vampire, as you uh, intimate, has a very large uh, fan base already. And many of them sort of what do I want to say? Co-evolved with the vampire storyteller system with its, uh, 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 botches and whatnots. And so meaning that it was their introduction to role playing. Yeah. And in, in many ways it was their introduction and they've sort of worked their own magic to avoid or evade the actual probabilistic, uh, hiccups of that engine. And so, it was a bit of a worry for me, and I'm sure it will happen as it moves farther out into the gaming universe that it will hit a, a planet that doesn't know the war is over. But everyone we've play tested the new engine, the new botch free engine for, um, has loved it, has really gotten into it. They've, they've liked playing it. They really liked social combat, which was great. Um, that was sort of, I formalized a thing that had sort of been present in Ovo in original vampire and made sure that it was given the same degree of precedence that uh, physical combat was. And that seems to have worked really well. And people really sort of glommed onto what we were doing, which was very, very nice Um, in terms of other sorts of things. I think that some of the other sort of mechanical elements that I introduced are going to show up in longer term play than play tests. Uh, for example, the memoriam system where you can remember a thing that you did back when you were a younger vampire. Uh, we called it uh, the Highlander system, but it's the same basic notion. You're like, oh, right. I remember in 1888, I had a gunfight with that guy. And then you go back and you remember it and you come back to the present having learned a valuable skill that you or learned something that you can then apply going forward. So basically, uh, I spent much of my design process ripping off your design process because if that sounded like, um, uh, hero wars, uh, slash quest. That is exactly what it was. And um, the uh, one role combat in uh, Vampire that is meant to speed up combat even more if players are doing like free form and they don't want to stop and, you know, dice out every every part of the fight. Uh, that is going to seem very familiar to you as well, Robin, because it is not <laughs> unlike the quick shock system. Right. And so what are the uh, the effects on play of removing uh, botches. I mean, the, the single biggest effect that I tried for sort of throughout is to make playing a vampire feel like you're playing someone who is superhuman, who is better than the setting. And, uh, that involves taking out botches because mathematically, the better you got in the old system, 
uh, the more dice you would roll and the more ones that would come up, the worse you would get. So statistically, the better you were, the worse you were, which is sort of an annoying hiccup uh, to the game. And it breaks fiction. And the goal always, always, always for any game, but certainly for vampire is to make a game that feeds the fiction <laughs> uh, and makes you feel like you are a dark uh, creature of the night who is a dangerous predator, not a guy who can't quite get the door open. And the important, you know, sort of step toward that, I then sort of put an afterburner on with the addition of criticals um, so that you can be, you can really be Batman. I mean, if you are, uh, if you're good enough, you set it up so you have a big enough dice pool, your chances of just blowing the problem away are much higher than they were. So that's going to uh, be something that, again, I was worried if there was going to be pushback in play. And I think people who read it were like, that seems like a lot of criticals. And I'm like, see if you hate being powerful and good at things and then come back to me. And most people have come back and said, yeah, we, we kind of like that. Yeah, that well, on second great. thought, are we enjoyed it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And way back somewhere in our previous 297 episodes, uh, we did an entire segment on the sort of the philosophical implications and narrative implications of whether you use fumble rules or not. Right. And it certainly seems like, uh, you know, in retrospect, an odd choice to have uh, put that into Vampire. I guess the logic being that it's a horror game, so bad things happen to you. Yeah. But, uh, in Vampire, really, you are a bad thing that happens to others. Right. Yes, <laughs> so. exactly. Um, you are you are the random encounter, the wandering monster. Yeah. I mean, you can still fail. Obviously, it's not you know, a uh, complete candy floss life being a vampire. And plus there's things tougher than you that also get criticals, but you can generally be a more propulsive actor. You can drive more of the story and that can be emotionally or physically or socially or mentally in, in any of the spectra that vampire operates. And that's one of the other things that was present in 1991 in the original system. And I sort of like took some of the chocks out from under the wheels is being able to use any set of dice to do anything. And once you can actually do things with that and add dice in a somewhat more reliable mechanical fashion, then you are going to be able to make plans and say, I think if I do this, this, and this, I'll be able to add four more dice to myself. And suddenly I'm an unstoppable terror. Um, and that's going to be able to be something you can sort of internalize and intuit. And then that'll feed play much faster is the goal. And I think so far, at least the play tests have demonstrated that that's what happens. And similarly, the big effect on play of uh, the quick shock system is that because the fights are shorter, there is more room for the investigative part of the session so that you're not uh, dropping out of mystery solving mode for half an hour to 45 minutes of fighting. And any game uh, where you uh, make fighting quicker and more efficient means that uh, when you're designing scenarios, you need more plot to mm-hmm. uh, engage the players for the rest of that uh, time. And that was something that I uh, noticed. I uh, recently ran a demo of what's going to be the convention scenario that uh, people can play at Gen Con of uh, Yellow King. And uh, by having a much shorter uh, sort of climactic fight and even sort of a mid-range fight in the middle, that uh, it would still felt satisfying and exciting, but much more of the time was spent uh, solving mystery, which is something uh, that, of course, is true in genre to uh, whether it's a, a mystery novel or an episode of a uh, sort of a mystery based uh, show that the you don't have the big, long, epic fight scenes that you would have in uh, a movie, an action movie. So that unlike, for example, Feng Shui, which still 
spends a lot of time on fighting, that uh, fighting is now more clearly sort of a, a secondary event. Another thing that I found myself doing was pulling out things at the end of the day that I thought were sort of interesting ideas but did not win a lot of engagement, either with my own uh, in-house playtest or uh, with the outside playtesters. So anything that seemed like a cool idea but nobody commented on and my own group didn't really use, uh, I uh, removed. Uh, because at the end of my process, it's like, what can I simplify? What can I uh, take out that isn't really doing anything? So, for example, in uh, one of the four sequences or settings, the aftermath setting, the idea is that your uh, ex-insurgents who have just uh, toppled the uh, yellow sign-inspired 100-year dictatorship in America, and uh, you are trying to go back to civilian life. But of course, there's still problems to be solved around the corner that keep you pulling you back in. So I thought a way to make that interesting in the mechanics were that you could go back onto war footing, the group could declare their own war footing, and that would give them a big bonus to fighting, uh, and then a penalty to their composure, the thing that prevents them from getting right. the, the shocks that may make it impossible mentally to go on and, and continue. But it's not something that uh, my own players ever invoked and not something that uh, the playtesters talked about. And uh, probably part of that is you hear about it once and then you just kind of forget about it. Mm. Um, and so although that is interesting in theory, it wasn't used in practice. And so you could do two things when you discover that. You can either go, well, darn it, I really want to make sure that people do this. Um, or you can do the simpler thing and go, eh, and cut it out. Right. Um, were there similar things that you wound up simplifying out of the system where ideas that you had originally toyed with that turned out to not be so much? I mean, there are, there are things that I wanted the system to do that I either recognized I was not going to be able to do in a mechanically satisfying way or that the powers that be said, um, you, you've done enough, Shep, just go lie down. And then some of the things are, are things that I designed and, you know, send up the line and they're like, this will make an excellent thing for another book. And I don't know what those all are, but I, uh, so I can't really speculate on the air, but I, I know that that did happen at some point where, um, because my instinct is sort of the, I don't say the opposite, but it's the other direction where it's like, if I've come up with something clever that players might do, I leave it in because that gives players another resource and another, and even if this group doesn't want to do it and never wants to engage with war footing or with, um, whatever, there may be another group that comes along next time and they want to engage with it. But certainly there were, there were notions that I had of putting in, for example, a full on, uh, here's how you build a city mechanically with dots and everything. And I recognized that that was going to take up a lot of space and be something that, that we just couldn't support. They would have sort of overweighted the ship in a way that you right. would have been spending way too much time doing that. And it would have made it look like, Oh God, to play vampire, I have to do this whole uh, endless mini game. And it's like, no, this would have been an optional thing, but you can't really present it in that way. So I sort of, lifted that out before it got completely finished. I sort of looked at the superstructure and said, uh, it's going to be very long and uh, took it right out. Right. Because that's a great thing about uh, tabletop role playing is if you have, uh, you know, web content or uh, later supplements that something that you're not a hundred percent sure uh, works because nobody used it and they didn't tell you whether it worked or not. Right. You can all, you know, it's easy. It'll be easy enough for me to take that, paragraph about war footing from a previous draft and uh, put it on uh, the web and that'll be a fun thing for people to go and look at and 
uh, I can then release that into the wilds with the proviso that, uh, well, it, I can't think of any reason why this doesn't work, but nobody tested it. Right. And, uh, it's, it's better to, you know, I think be cautious in that. And, and just also, uh, you know, my impulse is always, uh, you know, to simplify, simplify, simplify so that people can then, you know, once you've learned it, uh, once you've been through the learning curve and especially once your, uh, you know, somewhat more reluctant players have been through the learning curve, it's easier to add stuff to their experience uh, later, right. but you really want to make sure that it doesn't seem too daunting uh, from the beginning. Um, another big shift, uh, the biggest surprise, uh, is that, uh, with my own group, I, uh, for a long time is going, this is supposed to be a horror game, but this seems kind of forgiving. And, uh, I don't know, maybe it's too easy. And then I got back to playtest feedback and it was like, this is not too easy. <laughs> we are all dying and going and losing our connection to reality. Uh, so, uh, in fact, what I wound up doing was, taking a leaf from your book and adding uh, uh, two different modes. So there's now horror mode. And, <laughs> and by my book, we mean Alan Varney's book. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, I, I took it from your book, but uh, it, it, you're right. It, it wasn't a different spidery hand to come to think of it. Yes. <laughs> um, and so uh, now there's a horror mode, which is uh, the original tougher version that we all tested. And then the other one is called a cult adventure mode. And so that, right. uh, yeah. among other things, allows you to get uh, an additional injury card or an additional shark card before your character leaves play. And that's one of the one of the sort of fun slash interesting things when you're playtesting with a group that you've been playing with for a long old time. Because on the one hand, this means you can do more intricate things. They trust you. You can build stuff better. You can have a deeper, more uh, reliable playtest, and you can read their responses more readily than you can from some bunch of strangers on the internet or even some bunch of close personal friends, but you didn't see them play. Right. But on the other hand, they're used to you. And so it's like, you know, yeah, Robin thinks this is tough. We've been through worse. We'll show him. But some poor innocent schmuck out there is like, they haven't gone through the sort of uh, toughening process, the training montage that your players have. And so they hit something and they're like, Oh, I don't know. This seems pretty terrible. <laughs> yes. And, and part of that was making sure that there was more explicit guidance uh, to players as to how many points to put in their, uh, general abilities. And these mm -hmm. are your survival abilities. And so, mm -hmm. uh, that, of course, is something that is easy to assume. Uh, but of course, you should do the opposite of assume <laughs> in, in many things, including yes. game design. I'm, I'm actually kind of wondering, uh, how many people are going to come back from Fall of Delta Green and, and, uh, and be shell shocked because they didn't beef up, you know, health and stability. And we've always sort of left that as a, well, of course you want that line somewhere in the buying general abilities, but maybe bolding it or giving it its own paragraph or something might be key for the more deadly and awful settings like Yellow King and Fall of Delta Green. In Vampire, fortunately, it's fairly clear that, uh, and the, the goal again is to make no given, uh, no given attribute and no given skill a killer absolute must live thing, but you know where your health comes from and you know where your composer comes from, so, there you go, kids. It's, it's not, 
it, it's not as opaque because the building process is sort of more stochastic, I guess, than it is for gumshoe characters. Right. And, and uh, longtime listeners, uh, as we come up to our, you know, we're almost at our 300th episode, uh, people mm-hmm. know that as soon as the word stochastic gets used, you have to stop the segment right there. Conveniently, we've already spoken for a segment length. It would have been a bummer if you'd said it three minutes. If in. I'd said it, well, that's, that's the trained podcast differences. I don't say it early. Exactly. Back in the early times, we would say it and then the hut would be two minutes long. Yes, that was, that was a, that was a sad, sad early times of our 12 minute episodes. Right. Uh, so given that rule, uh, head on out and, uh, and see what, uh, what lies before us on the vast plain of huts. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrain Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The clanking of chains and the moaning of ghosts tell us we've once more entered the terrifying confines of the horror hut. But wait a minute. The hut seems more like a tent this time around, and as I uh, part the flap to look out, I see the the vast expanses of the Saharan Desert, and uh, I believe an ill, hot wind is coming our way, because Patreon backer Steve Perpich Harvey asks the following. I've been obsessed with Jean ever since reading Declare. Tell me all that there is to know about these entities. Most especially, how can I make the Jean in my game as awesome as those in the book. Well, we're going to again tell about 15 to 20 minutes worth about Jean. Uh, so these are sort of the, uh, both the evil spirits and the demons of, uh, Arabian uh, folklore, including pre-Islamic folklore. Uh, where do we want to start with the Jean after that? I mean, I think that the key thing, I mean, because they are now, you know, as you say, they were pre-Islamic, but let's, let's start with the sort of the center of the Jean, which is that they are a first creation of God sort of warming up, or Allah, I should say, uh, warming up. Uh, he created entities of smokeless fire that were proud and mighty, and uh, they resembled humans. Uh, so it was sort of a, I don't know if it was a first draft or just a thing God had to do because everyone knew there was gene, and so the, the Muhammad had to sort of ask God, when did you make these things? What's the story on them? Uh, anyway, so they, they got built first, and they 
generally it is understood, and this you know, there's different versions of the story, but uh, when God created Adam, he said, all right, all you gene, bow down to Adam. And one of the gene did not. And that gene, Iblis, got sent to the bad place and was turned into the devil because he didn't bow down to Adam. And that was sort of a version of the Christian mythology about God making all the angels. And then he makes Adam and he says, this is your new boss, angels. And Lucifer says, not my boss. Uh, and then uh, God kicks him out. So it's that same sort of story that happens only with the gene instead of angels. Although angels are also a thing in Islam and it's not the same thing. And because Islam also comes out of a post-Christian milieu, it has angels and a, a devil, uh, you know, shaitan and, and the rest of it and an antichrist even that shows up, uh, to be the opposite of Christ. And then the real apocalypse gets going. But the larger point is Jean and angels and demons are three different things, even if the stories about them sort of overlap and and flow back and forth because that is a the way of folklore and b it is the way of the gene that they do that because they are sneaky right now uh mythology unlike monster manuals uh, yes. tends not to draw uh, bright distinctions and have uh, categories for everything uh so uh given that given the, the leakage between different stories how does a a gene differ then from a demon um a gene uh, can go to heaven if it is good that's one of the big things about it. So demons can't do that. Does that imply that they're mortal? That is actually a good question. I don't know if they go to heaven at the end of time when it's like everyone gets sorted out. Um, I believe that they they can be killed, certainly, because there's ample stories about how they are killed. Um, and so they may be immortal in the same way that vampires are immortal. They're, they live forever until you kill them. But I think that there are no sort of – there are stories about gene that sort of have – changed over time into a different form. Like there's plenty of stories about Jean that sort of shrink down into the size of a cricket or that they turn into a statue or something because they just were so old that they just sort of, you know, changed the, their shape and their nature a little bit, but they're still magic and creepy and horrible. And you don't want anything to do with that statue or those crickets. Right. So, yeah. So that's the, the difference between them and how are they presented uh, in declare? Uh, because we want to be cool in the way that they are cool in declare. Right. In declare, uh, Jean are, uh, again, it's very much like that. They are a different creation that, that God created or allowed to exist. They, uh, in declare they're very much evil, uh, creatures. There's no good gene out there, um, because, uh, Tim is a Catholic, not a Muslim. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so the, um, uh, the, the gene sort of when God flooded the earth to destroy all the monsters and giants and demons and Nephilim, they made their own ark and they sort of, you know, tagged along behind the ark and they're sort of sneaky and awful. They're entities that have a perception that if you try to share it, it deranges you. They're very Azathoth in that way. They're, they're an idiot chaos, but perhaps they're so their seeming idiocy is because they exist on such an immense scale that we can't even perceive them. And when we try and perceive them with human characteristics, they seem idiotic because that's the only thing a human response to them can be. They're in, they're enormous. They, they give power to uh, those who uh, possess and, and do deals with them. Um, they, they guard uh, in uh, declare, they guard the Soviet union, for example, the Russian uh, in the, in the czar times, the Okrana uh 
carried a jean down out of uh, Mount Ararat and uh, put it in um, uh, in Moscow uh, at the Anchor Bank because that you know right there that's your key and that of course becomes the Lubyanka that uh, so look at that right there um, you can't get clearer than that and so the jean uh, colony on Mount Ararat is in the concept this sort of like anti creation these klepothic entities that exist. Um, uh, as, as sort of as their own, uh, immense creation. And they, um, uh, and they will tempt you by, um, uh, offering you power. But if you take their power, you have, you know, fed on their sort of cannibal nature. And then you are, you know, damned by God. And that's bad news in Declare because Declare is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an occult, uh, novel. It very, it, it has a wheatlish, a flavor of good and evil, which is, I think, part of why a lot of people like it. And it's the, the gene are very satisfyingly cosmic. They're, um, I think powers got them from the Eldil, the, the macro beings in, uh, that hideous strength. But as opposed to platonic concepts, they are definitely bad news. Right. And so are they, uh, like Azathoth in the sense that they, uh, don't even care enough about us to have an agenda, but they're just not a good wavelength to get onto? Or is there, uh, something that uh, the gene want, uh, because of course that's some, uh, if you want a great antagonist, uh, mostly uh, that antagonist has to uh, want something. The the other alternative, of course, if it doesn't really want anything from us, is who's interacting with them and causing right. uh, trouble. Yeah, and and Tim leaves it a little bit ambiguous in Declare. The notion that is sort of the going assumption uh, from all the people who are dealing with the gene is that they want worship. They want to be worshipped like they were in the old times before God messed everything up. And and so if you do your obeisance to them and you sacrifice to them, then they will give you power. And that's the old deal that uh, the gene made back in the day before, you know, Jesus and Muhammad wrecked it for everybody. But the question remains open. Is that just the way the human characters perceive the gene? Because when you're actually sort of present at them, he very much emphasizes their sort of vast, incomprehensible, geometric idiocy in a way that implies that this trading of worship for power is a human concept. And because the gene sort of pattern match, once you perceive them, they take on that quality of avarice and uh and power lust that causes people to go looking for gene in the first place. So it's sort of like the old Nietzschean um don't go hunting monsters or you become a monster, but in this case it's don't go hunting monsters or you'll turn the things you find into into monsters, which is, you know, much cooler frankly than Nietzsche. Uh and but again, you can read declare very very straightforwardly as nope, gene are evil, they want worship, they are pre-human demons. And it's a good thing when they all get blown away. Right. And of course, that's an ambiguity that you can uh, retain and explore in your series of scenarios that revolve around Gene that you can, the player characters can run into, uh, you know, a, a, a prelate of the, of the church who's like, uh, these are, it's just another name for demons. And these guys are completely demons and don't make any bargains with them. They're just like all the, uh, everything that, that the church says about these is correct and you don't want to mess with them. Here's the hard line way to deal with them. And then you can, uh, you know, run into the, uh, postmodernist scholar of Jin studies who's like, well, actually they're, they're entirely subjective and they're just what you project onto them. So, uh, when you run into them, try and try this experiment and try to project, uh, something benign onto them and see what happens. And here's a, here's a key that I've, uh, that I found that, uh, you know, I'm not feeling, you know, I'm, 
feeling unwell today, turns out, but why don't you go and use this key and try to project something uh, positive onto them? Of course, implicit in all of this is the idea that the terrible bargain that uh, that people strike uh, and gain uh, power, you know, the power is objectively uh, present, uh, whatever the cosmological mechanism for that. And so that you have to deal not only with those people with that power, but you uh, you might want to just deal with them. And then when you find out there's a gene on the other side of the door, uh, depending on what you've been told, you might be tempted to just close that door and go away. And I think <laughs> a, a lot of role players would be satisfied uh, with that. And of course, that's a version of the, you know, Indiana Jones and Marion's face is not melting at the end of Raiders. Right. So that's yeah. a, a classic moment that you could have. Um, and uh, but then, you know, there's the thought, well, why don't we go through this doorway and and uh, try and find out who these creatures are by fighting them. That, that uh, you know, can't possibly go wrong. Let's try that out. Well, the, um, the that sort of Faustian impulse, I mean, because in, in Declare also there are characters who sort of understand that there's a secret world but want no more to do with it. And the implication is sort of there that Lawrence was one of those people who's like, oh, I found out what these things are and I don't want to deal with it. And that's why... You know, the SO, the, the, the British, uh, intelligence killed him in 1935. But the notion that, yeah, you know that there's gene behind the door, but you're perfectly happy just stopping conventional spies is a thing you can do, but without that Faustian drive to know and possibly not even necessarily control, but to overcome, um, then the game is less satisfying, I feel. I mean, it's, it's not as cool if you're doing straight up, um, uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, and every so often Smiley will lean back and say to, um, Gillen, you know, of course, that, um, uh, Carla is actually a puppet on the hand of the gene, but I don't want to deal with that. So <laughs> we're just going to stop his mole and that'll be it. Um, that, that would not, I think, be as fun, certainly for long-term play. Maybe if you do it as, as a climactic moment, you're like, oh, look, there was a bigger supernatural truth that we've glimpsed and now we move away from as part of your arc. That might make sense. But to do it over and over and over again, um, sort of uh, misses the point, I think, of putting them in the game in the first yes, place. That, that's your, that should only not pay off if right. the players choose to have it not pay off, right? right? If they decide to close the door and not go in, that's fine. That's something they did. But if you just throw that out there and then never allow them to interact with it, that's, uh, that's the, uh, the, the height of, of poor narrative and, and, uh, game master torture. So just before we go on a practical level, uh, what on powers, a level. uh, speaking of powers, uh, do the Jin give, uh, to our characters that we would recognize them as, as being distinctly Jin like and not, you know, demons or angels or other things that could be in the book. If you've made a deal with the Jin, you are protected from damage. So for example, Kim Philby makes a deal with the Jin and he can't be murdered. Um, and then the way that you, you threaten him is you're like, oh no, we've talked to the gene already and they've agreed to withdraw their protection from you. And that's how you sort of get him threatened and worried. But, uh, they can like bring down aircraft because they're super tall storm beings of smokeless fire. So if you get into a plane over Mount Ararat, you are taking your own life into your hands. Um, they provide invisibility if you sort of move in the gene rhythm uh, that sort of moves you out of human perception then you also become invisible so there's a bit where um, uh, the, the the homeless people in Paris the clochards have sort of sussed out the gene exist and move in these rhythms that prevent the Gestapo from seeing them in occupied Paris and uh, the SOE uh, group that knows about gene adopt that gene rhythm in order to hide from the Gestapo but every time you do it you're sort of moving your way 
a little bit um, uh, away from God and away from good. Uh, the, similarly, they allow sort of magical ability to transmit radio messages because they exist up in the heaviside layer above uh, the atmosphere. And so you can tap into their frequency and sort of like become an inspired transmitter. Uh, uh, Powers mostly uses that as a, um, as a little grace note in the course of the novel, because his characters are sending radio messages back to Moscow, but you can certainly play a lot with that as well. And then of course there's the whole makes your empire not fall thing. That is a more macro level. But if you're an agent of the empire, that's an agent of gene in theory, you would probably be able to get sustenance from you from murdering your empire's enemies. And then that would make you more powerful and irresistible in battle. Um, and whether or not it's an individual case or just sort of a, everyone in your army sort of gets a plus one to con saves and we'll just figure it works out in world war two. Uh, is a different question. Uh, well, on that note, it's uh, time for us to move like Jean uh, through this uh, commercial message into the segment on the other side. What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagalm. Ask for Askfagalm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Impress kindly Jin by joining such Patreon backers as... Matt Farr. Alex Johnston. Andrew Weikart. Jeremy French. And Dave Choate. We pull open the closet. We see the veritable stash of bicockets, stetsons, baseball caps, fur babushkas, and indeed, what's this? It's some sort of, I don't even know what that is. Is it like a bronze helmet? Robin, you're wearing a bronze helmet. Does that mean you're back in Glorantha? Is that what that means? Yes, I'm wearing a bronze helmet of the Hyaluring people. Because we are among our many hats. And among Robin's many hats is the new King of Dragon Pass uh, computer game, Six Ages, Ride Like the Wind. And first, explain that title. So, Six Ages uh, refers to uh, the fact that uh, if uh, this first chapter is uh, popular uh, enough, that there will be uh, six chapters altogether 
of, uh, of this game, which is like King of Dragon Pass. And so, uh, this first, uh, section occurs in, uh, what Glorantha fans will know as the Storm Age. So this is Ooh. back in the Age of the Gods. It's in mythic time. That's when Stormball is getting his, uh, feeling his oats, right? Right. This has been everything Ken knows about Glorantha. There we go. So our people, uh, we've, we've had to flee now our golden city and for generations uh we've moved on horseback we're we're uh riders of horses we have the uh and the ability in this world to ride a horse is uh, the magical gift of the gods uh, in particular the goddess gamari who started out as uh as a hippogriff and uh she used to have wings and fly but the uh the troll god attacked her and ripped her wings off <gasps> and then our a culture hero who was a human at the time, but later um, moved on to become a god, uh, spoke to uh, Hippogriff, uh, realized that her name is Gamari now, and she gave us the ability to ride on horseback, which even the other uh, nobles of our uh, in our ancient city of Navora, which we've had to flee, uh, they could only you know use horses. Uh, in front of chariots, the charioteers. And so, uh, our ancestors back in the day were the upstarts who learned to actually ride horses and become a cavalry, which was, uh, pretty badass. Uh, but then, because the, uh, the horrible, uh, rebellious, uh, uh, gods of storm cracked their way through the glorious uh, golden sun dome, uh, things have gotten stormy ever since and our city was overrun. Uh, by ice. And so uh, we've had to continue migrating over a period of many generations uh, uh, south. And now we finally uh, settled as the game begins in this uh, uh, new land uh, where we are going to uh, build our horses and decorate our, or sorry, build our uh, houses. Uh, building horses is a totally different game. That was what the goddess already did. Yes, exactly. Uh, so we're going to build our houses and, and set up our temples and clear the land for uh, pasture. Uh, but of course we have neighbors and, uh, some of, like you do. some of our neighbors are other riders. Uh, some of our, uh, neighbors are the charioteers, the wheels, we call them. Uh, and, uh, they're, we share some of the same culture, but they are the, the hidebound, uh, uh, traditionalists and, and Hyalore told us that the only, uh, uh, rule was that you had to make your own rules in order to survive. So we have a, a creative, vibrant culture hero who has allowed us to go our own way. And as we've, uh, sown the exploits of our clan, uh, inside, we've embroidered it in our story tent. Uh, we're the ones trying to figure out how to, uh, what innovations do we need in order to survive, uh, in this new world? So at this point, you, the listener, are wondering, if you don't know King of Dragon Pass, what is this as a game? Well, uh, it's a, a mobile game. It's on uh, iOS to begin with, and it is a combination of a resource management game uh, with a narrative politics thread, and it's that uh, part of it, in addition to writing the myths and stuff, that was my uh, job as a, as a head writer on the, on the game and, uh, design, you know, I'm, and because I designed these scenes, I'm, you know, there's game design involved as well. And right. so, uh, you are trying to make sure that you have the, you know, enough cattle to survive because you're cattle herders. You need enough horses in order to, uh, defend yourself against your, uh, enemies. And also they're the most valuable, important thing because they're, uh, you know, super holy to you. Uh, you know, if you, you might have some goats as well, uh, you know, and they're uh, useful in the mix. Um, and, uh, so that you're uh, managing the economics of your clan, your diplomacy, so you can go and visit 
your neighbors and try and uh, strike trade arrangements or uh, set up a trade route or make yourself formal allies with them. Or if a neighbor is feuding with you, you can try and, you know, defuse the, the feud. Uh, like any good cattle herder of this period, of course, uh, you're not above stealing cattle from your neighbors or uh, raiding them in a, a, a more uh, martial and dramatic fashion. And uh, so you have your uh, fortifications that you want to uh, build and uh, uh, you want to make sure that you have the right balance of uh, uh, soldiers. And uh, at the same time, uh, you know, during this long journey, uh, some of the, the ancient myths uh, that you learned along the way, you've forgotten again. So you have to go and uh, learn them in order to have the right uh, rituals in order to uh, uh, bring down magic and uh, which temples to which gods of your pantheon you decide to uh, a build determine which blessings you can get. And so you're trying to keep all of those things rolling. And uh, like uh, real politics and real resource management, uh, it's hard to keep all of those things in balance, especially when in events intrude upon you. And so the uh, scene writing was my main task on this. I've written on word count basis like nine novels worth of material that, that go into this. <laughs> and so... For example, you will get a scene where uh, you discover uh, wounded trolls uh, out in the, the sort of outskirts of your land. And it's like, do you try to talk to them? Do you finish them off? Uh, do you go and uh, try and perform a, a spirit blessing to get the spirits to protect you from more trolls coming? Uh, and so you're generally given uh, four to five different options. Uh, do nothing is, is often an option. And you have uh, chosen your um, members of the uh, clan circle. You've, so you've got your seven clan leaders, you've got your chieftain and six other advisors. And uh, choosing them is uh, uh, also a delicate balance because you want to make sure that all of the different skills uh, that they can have, whether it's expertise in food or magic or lore or combat, those are all handled. You've got representatives who can do all of those things because that affects your success or failure rate in the scenes. Uh, you want to make sure that a member of every family is uh, handled is uh, present on the circle. And uh, so if you click on the faces of each of the advisors, they will give you advice from their point of view. If they have really great advice to give based on their skills, they will give that. If they have, uh, if there's nothing in particular for them to say, they also have uh, advice that they will give you related to their uh, personal agendas, which may or may not actually be useful or germane to the scene so that the, a uh, character who is really heavily invested in making sure you have the best goat herd in the valley, uh, he's going to give you goat-related advice. And sometimes when the subject is goats, that will matter a lot. And other times uh, you don't know and can't evaluate because like any group of uh, advisors, sometimes they give you good advice and sometimes they give you not so great advice and you have to sort that out and, and make your choice. Have you tried adding more goats? Yes, exactly. Um, and, and also like real politics, there's no single right or wrong answer most of the time. Uh, famously in King of Dragon Pass, uh, which is the earlier game in this format, it came out, uh, as a desktop computer game in 99 and was popular in Finland, <laughs> but <laughs> didn't really take off until the proper form uh, for this game, the, the mobile uh, device came along, and so it was revived on iOS and then later on Android. Uh, it was revived in uh, 2011 and has gone on to be a much bigger hit now than it ever was back in the day. Part of the reason it can do that is because it doesn't have any computer animation. It's all beautiful right. uh, line art. Imagery. Um, right, yeah. In this case, uh, the uh, art director and lead artist 
is a Patreon backer, uh, Jan Poshpashil, but has a whole uh, raft of amazing artists who've uh, got all this uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful illustrations. And because they're attractive drawings, uh, they never age. They're, they look yeah. just as great now as, as they did uh, uh, back then. And so uh, in Kingdom Dragon Pass, there's one scene where there's always a right answer. And that is a typical adventuring party shows up at your door asking for hospitality. And the correct answer always is kill those guys. Kill them. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's no equivalent scene in Six Ages because it's it's too early in history to have adventuring right, parties. Before there are adventuring parties. Yes, exactly. And, yes. Uh, you know, we already did that joke. So uh, this time around. Um, what the right answer is in the right situation just depends on where you are economically. With the, There's so many different factors that the game tracks from your uh, different relationships to the different clans because uh, politically you're trying to make sure uh, that people either like or fear you. Uh, you want to make sure that they, uh, however, don't uh, hate or mock you. And, of course, those two things, well, it's not so easy to strike a balance between the, those mm. two things. Um, and so uh, when a clan shows up asking for a favor, there's all sorts of things that can factor into whether it is a good idea to grant them that favor or not. And uh, therefore, there are all sorts of emergent things that are going on in uh, the uh, different numbers that it tracks between uh, diplomacy and economics and uh, and uh, warfare that even I, when I am playing the game, can't look at the multiple choice and go, oh, well, here's the one to pick. Because there's too many factors to consider, uh, which is why, you know, you could never actually do a cheat book for King of Dragon Pass or Six Ages because it's, it's like, impossible to say. It's impossible to say. And often there are you may be making a, a choice between two possible good options, uh, which, of course, is much harder than a choice between a good option and a bad option or two differently bad options. What do you do? And as you go along, different narrative sub threads start to develop. So some of the scenes are just independent, right? The group of priestesses showing up asking you for uh, ritual support in their healing ritual. That doesn't have a big, long narrative necessarily attached to it. But there are other things that happen in the game. Uh, for example, partway through, there's a, a religious schism where somebody uh, comes down uh, from a, the plateau where your uh, cultural hero slash god Hyalor is uh, said to have died, and they discover, oh wait, there's a he has a a daughter we never heard of before in the myths, and she's half elf, and uh, that seems kind of crazy, but I I think it's true. And then you get to decide, well, you either embrace the, this new revelation about Sanala, the uh, the daughter of Hyalor, or you decide to. Uh, you know, form a, a staunch bulwark against that uh, revelation and decide that it's a false revelation. And that creates all sorts of difficult politics within both the riders and the wheels. And again, there's no right or wrong answer, but it sets off a series of scenes. And even the other scenes that appear to be standalone are then changed by the fact that this schism storyline has activated. And that's just one of several uh, storylines that then will all sort of feed together and then uh, culminate in a, in, in a big finish that I, I will not hint at. Ah, well, except to say there's a big finish, which is a hint enough, yes. I suspect. Um, So as you're putting this all together, this gigantic interlocking 
geopolitical world. Um, did you have any takeaways from that design process? I mean, you sort of did this for Dragon Pass back in the day. Was this just Dragon Pass bigger and better, or was there new things that you brought to the table, or things that you think you can bring away from that table into our own uh, exciting little universe? Well, uh, certainly, uh, the King of Dragon Pass has sort of one uh, story arc, and this has several, and we learned uh, different lessons from King of Dragon Pass. So this is uh, a more skilled iteration of that. And we've learned lessons from this that we'll be putting into uh, future chapters as well. Uh, so uh, from everything from the uh, the actual skill check mechanism that was used to determine whether you succeed or fail, it's um, less swingy this time, so it's more reliable in that sense. Um, and also, um, one of the main challenges this time was just the fact that uh, King of Dragon Pass, you are in a valley full of people who all share the same culture, right? None of your neighbors are, you might be, your neighbors might be kind of weird Orlanthi, uh, but you're all Orlanthi. Uh, whereas here, you're not Orlanthi, but those guys are, and uh, you're also not the charioteers who you kind of have this a- ancient uh, grudge with. So that part of working on all of these scenes was the fact that uh, we had to take into account when writing them that you could be talking to a ram clan or a, uh, a wheel clan or another rider clan. So the sort of the tripartite politics of this one is a big elaboration uh, over uh, uh, King of Dragon Pass. And in terms of uh, building that into uh, future things, uh, I may have a hat in the future. <laughs> oh, in which, a future hat. In addition to the other five ages worth uh, of hats. Yes. Uh, in which, uh, possibly some of the, uh, design technologies that go into, uh, this version of Glorantha. I don't know, just maybe, say in a couple years, there might be a hat, uh, I might be wearing a different bronze helmet and, uh, and go mm-hmm. into how, uh, the experience of working on these games has, uh, filtered back into, into tabletop, but. Um, a more cowboy-like bronze helmet. Oh, someone has some secrets. Someone has some secrets. Yes. All right. Um, on that eerie and um, weirdly shapen note, I suspect that we should shut the closet door on the uh, many hats closet. Oh, before we shut any doors, though, uh, I should say the reason we're talking about this now yeah. is that as you hear this, Six Ages Ride Like the Wind is either on pre-order or if you're listening to the episode a little bit late, uh, actually available in the app store. So uh, it is, uh, I'm having a year where four years worth of work is all coming out in the <laughs> same calendar year. And this is uh, at least a year and a half worth of them uh, in the uh, in the app store. All right. So hi thee to the app store or um, sit around your Android device and uh, make little keening noises. Uh, and maybe perhaps the goddess will come and give you a horse or an Android version of six ages. Uh, but until that happy day, borrow your friend's, uh, iPhone. And now we're shutting the door. Now we're shutting it. Now we're going, we're leaving, backing away. (laughs) 
Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time once more to clamber up the creakety cobweb stairs to wave jauntily at the glowering portrait of Madame Lovatsky, who nonetheless continues to glower at us and head on into the Edwardian parlor, where, in his smoking jacket, waits for us the consulting occultist. And this time we're here to consult him on uh, an early... Perhaps not the earliest, but a very early debunker, uh, of course, and that is Reginald Scott, who is author of the uh, 1584 opus, The Discovery of Witchcraft, or, as it was better known in the day on uh, Renaissance Amazon, The Discovery of Witchcraft, wherein the lewd dealing of witches and witchmongers is notably detected in 16 books, whereunto is added a treatise upon the nature and substance of spirits and devils, and uh, like any good book marketer, uh, Reginald Scott, in his lengthy subtitle, has left out the fact that the nature and substance of spirits and devils is they don't have any substance because they're not part of nature. They don't really exist. Right. And so, uh, as I said, this is in uh, 1584. If this was the Food Hut, we would be talking about his 1574 book, which was a groundbreaking uh, book on hops cultivation, but this is a consulting occultist. Right. So uh, what do we need to know about uh, Reginald Scott and the discovery of witchcraft? All right. First of all, uh, before we get back to good old Reginald, um, I'm going to read the full version of the title because the in 16 books is something that people do when they don't want to give the whole title, but we got nothing but time, so I'm going to give it. The discovery of witchcraft, wherein the lewd dealing of witches and witchmongers is notably detected, the knavery of conjurers, the impiety of enchanters, the folly of soothsayers, the impudent falsehood of cozeners, the infidelity of atheists, the pestilent practices of pythonists, I love the alliteration, the curiosity of figure crafters, now we're just gygaxing, the vanity of dreamers, the beggarly art of alchemistry, the abomination of idolatry, the horrible art of poisoning, the virtue and power of natural magic, whoa, who saw that coming, and all the conveyances of ledger domain and juggling are deciphered, and many other things opened which have long lion hidden, howbeit very necessary to be known. Hereunto is added a treatise upon the nature and substance of spirits and devils, etc. And I like the final etc. That's the thing. I didn't mention the Bohemian Ear Spoons, but they're in there too. Just in case I come up with a new thing, they're in there. So Reginald Scott, as that lengthy subtitle can tell you, fancies himself a rational thinker. 
someone who sort of goes to the great mass of superstition. Um, one of the reasons this book became so popular is that he's very much like, um, someone who writes a big book of the occult and it's marketed in Barnes and Noble as the big book of the occult. And then you open it and it's by like James Randi yeah, or somebody. It's a big book of the occult and how it sucks and isn't real. And, and how it sucks and, and you shouldn't do it. it does. But, um, uh, he was a, uh, a reformed Protestant. The book quotes John Calvin a great deal. John Calvin, um, believed that believing in witches was the kind of thing papists did and he would have no truck with it. Um, he had plenty of reasons to burn people alive that didn't involve fanciful deals with the devil. <laughs> and it's not like a straight up Protestant Catholic thing. There were tons and tons of Protestants who believed in witchcraft, not least of them, King James of Scotland, who wrote a angry rebuttal to the discovery of witchcraft called um, uh, the Demonology, I believe. And uh, when James became king of England, it was probably for the best that Reginald Scott had been dead for three years. Right. And, and legend has it that every copy of the book was was thereupon burned. But of course, given that of you've just it quoted its lengthy subtitle, we know <laughs> that uh, that might be more legend than, uh, than truth. Right. And of course, the doctrine that there are no witches and it's all a bunch of liars was originally the Catholic Church doctrine. It was something called the Canon Episcopi when people would come around in the Dark Ages and say, this guy says he's doing witch magic. Is that a real thing? And the priests would say, no, don't be an idiot. For, for goodness sake, just go out and pray. It'll fix them. And uh, and that was called the Canon Episcopi, and it was the overturning of the Canon Episcopi uh, by uh, Pope Innocent that sort of triggered the whole um uh, a big witch hunt and when he gave his imprimatur to the publication of the Malleus Maleficarum where you go out and you find out what the signs of witches are, that's when you can you know go out and burn people alive again, uh, like they did in the old days, except of course in the old days they knew better than that because they were smart. So he was not the first debunker of witchcraft, but he was the first great early modern debunker during the great um uh, witchcraft debate, if you want to call it that, that was going on back and forth. And he spent a good time, a good amount of time re rebuking and refuting other known authorities on witchcraft, such as Jean Baudin, who was a lawyer who put up a very, very strong legal case that witchcraft existed because he went out and did witchcraft prosecutions. And um, uh, he's like, I've seen it with my own eyes. Here's the truth. And Reginald Scott's like, yeah, maybe it's not the yeah, truth. You'd so say witch hunt. And he's like, yep. Yep. That's the <laughs> yeah, one. And witches. That's job. what I'm hunting. Um, so the, uh, so part of it is just sort of Protestant blaggarding of Catholic superstition, but another big part of it, as we've alluded, is sort of turning the rational light of science or of natural philosophy, at least, to the question of witchcraft. And among the things that natural philosophy has proven is that, uh, stones are magic because they resonate with the heavens and everyone knows that. That's, uh, unicorns give you poison relief. That, that's just straight up knowledge. Everyone knows yeah, that. That's, that's not supernatural at all. That's just, that's just the way that God made the world. Yeah. And so the, uh, the, the book sort of does, I don't know if it's like a straight up, you know, like Reginald Scott is sitting back folding his hands and thinking this'll, this will cover my bases or if it's just, because the the early modern period is is such a, a a weird time for magic to be progressing at the same time as and literally in the same heads as science. So when you have someone like uh, Paracelsus who is doing major uh, advances in uh, medicine and toxicology 
also is, you know, a practicing believer in mineral magic and herbalism and all these other things. And so the, the differential between those is sort of not where we as moderns think it ought to be. So Scott is not saying everything is lies. And if you can't prove it's lies, it's natural magic or God. That's not sort of, he's not doing that to have his cake and eat it too. He's doing that as a legitimate scholar, an intellectual who is trying to think out what are the specific causes in this case? And, you know, when you have a, an attested miracle or when you have a um, uh, a situation where a unicorn horn has saved someone from poisoning, he doesn't go back and say, there's no such thing as magic. He says, there's no such thing as witches because magic, like everything else that's part of the world, is done by God. So it would be as ridiculous to him to say there's evil magic as for you and I to say that there is evil gravity or evil optics, right? That just doesn't make any sense. It's not a word that goes together. Right. And the suggestion, then, that he's going to put the boots to jugglers. Right. Because even in a, ma- a magical universe, uh, even if magic did exist, that doesn't mean that there aren't any fakers and tricksters. And so he right. is revealing the secrets of conjuring, which, of course, are used at that time not for uh, stage magic, uh, but rather uh, to swindle you. And, uh, and therefore... Uh, even though this is a, a, you know, before the era of stage magic, this is also seen as one of the original texts on the nature of stage conjuring, because before there was stage conjuring, there was uh, uh, tricking you into uh, leaving all of your coins in the backyard, and uh, I'm going to replace that with a magical egg. Right, yeah. And that was sort of grifting that was another big thing that you did if you were a... Uh, a- the sort of a street magician or a conjurer, you would not necessarily uh, charge everyone a nickel to come see you sever your head. You would say, well, normally I don't like to do this, but uh, my traffic with demons has given me the ability to sever my head. So if I show you that I can sever my head, you'll give me money for my uh, alchemy project. And the guy's like, yep, that will prove it to me. And so you do that severed head. And he's like, all right, I, I buy it. Here's all the money. And then you take it off and say, what a ruby fell for the old severed head trick. The decollation of John the Baptist, as we like to call it. Yes. And so that's just a situation in, in one's game where uh, we are used now to thinking of, you know, the, uh, the witch hunts as persecuting people in the village who were uh, powerless and sitting on valuable property or the, or you just didn't like them. didn't like them or, you know, uh, they're uh, older women. We don't think they're useful. We want to get rid of them. But in this case, there's also, you know, genuine uh, evildoers, swindlers and uh, uh, tricksters who uh, you're, you can have a sympathetic witch finder uh, go and uh, find people who are uh, conning people. Uh, whether you think it's sympathetic to then throw them on the bonfire, of course, is a yeah. a, uh, a pre-modern uh, modern split in terms of sympathy. Mm-hmm. And um, and certainly it can provide you with a with a sort of a a moment in play where you can have you know your characters going through a world where there's magic because they know there's magic. They use magic; it's on their character sheet. And they meet a guy who's got powerful magic, and they sort of discover that he's a the, a faker and an imposter. And they're like, yay, we've, we've stopped this guy. And then the question is, do we expose him? Because now whenever we do magic, people will think we're fakers and imposters. Do we turn him over to the authorities to maybe get hung or, or beaten or, or burned alive? Or do we just sort of, you know, extort him and say, now we know how you did it. You have to give us half your take. And all of those are sort of rational responses, I guess, in play. You could also, if, if you want to sort of, uh, You'd have to pre-sell your players on this being the premise of your thing, because otherwise it's a 
horrible ripoff, but uh, you could sell them on the idea that, you know, the end of the age of magic is coming. And, uh, you know, Reginald Scott is moving around England, uh, finding out that all of these supposedly magic things are just uh, tricks. And uh, you have been working efficacious magic until now. But when you run into him, all of a sudden, your magic stops working. And uh, he's sort of the leading edge of this uh, this paradigm shift that is actually literally changing the rules of your world. And uh, do you find him and throw him in a lake and hope that nobody else comes <laughs> along and uh, institutes, if, if not a rationality, a, a irrationality upon you? Or do you uh, decide, oh, well, you know, I have to give up my own magic missiles. But uh, it turns out that you know, when he comes along, I'm not just powerless. It's just that my magic missile turns into a this weird sort of thing where I press the trigger and bullets come out of it, and I can still shoot people with it. And maybe most of the magic in the world is actually, you know, demons and 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 monsters and stuff. Maybe we'd be better off going along uh, with this, and I can still, you know, kill people this new, you know, uh, reliable Calvinist way. And, uh, you know, leave all of the, uh, the craziness behind us. So, you know, do I want to stop and be the one who's uh, keeping magic alive for a few generations and trying to push back on this uh, wave of uh, debunking and rationality? Or do I want to jump on that bandwagon as fast as possible? And maybe that'll give me the, the biggest, baddest gun for a while. So do we know how he went out and, and learned all of the, the um, mechanisms of trickery? Because it sounds from his biography that he was, uh, you know, a, a staid uh, country gentleman, something of a homebody. He was a member of parliament for a while. But uh, do, do we know how he gathered all of this information? Um, a lot of it is just reading. He's, he very uh, carefully cites his sources. Um, he, you know, uh, was not a poor man. He was a son of a knight. Um, second son, but still, you know, it, it was, it was, uh, Kent, it was good country. Um, obviously he's uh, growing hops better than anybody else. So that's, that's, that's great. He also, uh, he, he wasn't a lawyer, but he knew law. And so he would go to the various witch courts and take notes and, and talk to people. And one assumes that he's sort of doing a little bit of investigative journalism to an extent. Um, and then, you know, sort of. One assumes that as a young man, maybe he saw a witch trial and he's like, that seems like a railroad. And then, you know, sort of looked into it ever further and said, not only is it a railroad, it's a papist railroad. We can't have that. It's the sort of thing where I think a lot of it is uh, the sort of scholarship that is very, very uh common in the 16th century and even now is where you're not doing primary research necessarily, but you are assembling an awful lot of other people's primary research that no one is reading and putting it together in a, in a way that everyone can sort of uh, draw from going on because certainly later scholars of witchcraft use discovery of witchcraft as sort of a, a base manual uh, and a beginning for the dispute. So I, I think that he, you know, between a lot, a library and um, uh, local witch trials, he sort of put together as much information as he needed. So uh, other story seeds, uh, you could be uh, working for or with Reginald Scott. Uh, so you could be uh, there uh, when he's at a witch trial. And, and like him, you realize that the uh, defendants are uh, going to get uh, burned to death for nothing. And so you're doing the behind the scenes investigative work to uh, find uh, the real uh, 
a swindler or to show the real motivations of behind the false accusations. So that can give you a heroic thing to do during the, the witch trials. Or uh, you can be uh, dispatched to go and get an important book. And uh, uh, that's always a, a great uh, quest that you can go on and you can, uh, you know, run into somebody who's, oh, wait a minute, these, these people... Unlike what Sir Reginald says, they, they seem to actually be witches. And then you, you know, in Karnaki fashion, see through them and, uh, and then get the, get the book. So you could sort of be the Archie Goodwins to his Nero Wolf. Yeah. That, that would be a, a, a terrific thing. And then your job, as he sends you out, when you run into real magic, uh, real, real demon working is, well, do we want to go back and tell Reginald Scott or do you just want to kill these guys? And not ruin his book. <laughs> yes. Or does he train you in his methodology of figuring out how it could have been done without demon re and thus drawing their fangs? So it's not that Reginald Scott is wandering the land like the doctors in Munchausen, uh, putting the gray light of reason on everything. He's sending you out to, uh, uh, basically the, to, to technocracy, the, uh, the, the, the demonologists and the witches, the real witches out of existence so that suddenly instead of actually having curse powers, they are just crazy old people who you can hang with impunity. Uh, instead of being actually trafficking with hell, they're just uh, messed up from inhaling too much sulfur. Right. And then he dies and King James ascends the throne and, uh, oh, real magic seems to be more powerful. Real again. magic's coming uh, back. Well, and how uh, are we do we stop switch it? sides yet again? Uh, what do we do? I, I want to mention one connection that I'm sure we can do something with. There is a series of novels by uh, Russell Thorndike uh, about Dr. Sin, who lives in Romney Marsh, which is an area in Kent, which is where Reginald Scott had property. So... Uh, he disguised himself as a scarecrow to strike fear into his enemies and um, uh, to work with good smugglers against evil smugglers, I think. Uh, he fights pirates or something. But a guy who dresses as a scarecrow to scare people in the land that Reginald Scott owned strikes me as someone who maybe has found the full version of Reginald Scott that goes deeper into the natural magic and also the prestidigitation. And so if you have sort of a... I don't know what it would be like an ultimates 18th century smuggler versus pirate versus Frenchman uh, story where you're using Reginald Scott's clock punk ledger domain as a methodology for being a heroic scarecrow or the agents of the heroic scarecrow against the government and the French. That sounds like that has some possibility. And so you use Reginald Scott as sort of the Leonardo da Vinci of the setting. So he sets out this knowledge of conjuring and natural magic and unicorn horns and how to fake being a demon, all of which you can use to strike terror into the hearts of evildoers. Uh, right. And that's uh, Dr. Sin with a Y. Yes. Uh, and uh, there's a couple of film adaptations of that as, as well. Yes. One starring uh, the, gr the late, great uh, Patrick McGowan. Uh, well, on that note. Uh, we'll uh, send you uh, scrambling off to see if that's uh, available for your video delectation, and uh, we will uh, join you all after uh, exposing a few more jugglers uh, next week on the same time, same podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Bell Grain Press. Ask the Arc Dream. Dark Tower. 
and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Build fortifications against the hated Rams with such Patreon backers as... Kevin J. Maroney. Noel Warford. Pedro Garcia. Samwise Kreider. And Stephen Hammond. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Now available, Walrus Revenge! On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>